Dette er en podcastserie om digital transformation, talent management og bæredygtighed. Serien er produceret og udgivet af Sommersault og intervieweren af Tim Brun Madsen. Welcome to uh, this new podcast on uh, blockchain and blockchain uh, technology. Today we have Bernardo David uh, with us, who is an expert in, in blockchain and everything that's around it. And um, welcome, Bernardo. You hold a, a, a PhD in computer science and um, you work as an uh, associate professor at the uh, university, IT University in Copenhagen. And you're also involved in the Concordium uh, projects. Welcome again, and uh, I'm very happy that you will be here and, and take this uh, discussion uh, with me and, and hopefully um, teach me a lot about uh, blockchain uh, technology and where we are now and, and, and so forth. Welcome. Um, can you uh, briefly give us uh, the, the storyline of uh, blockchain technology here? Where are we now and what has happened the last uh, 20 years almost? Well, thanks for the invitation. Happy to be here at the podcast. Um, let's start then with a brief uh, history of how digital currencies appeared in the world that actually dates back to the early 80s when David Chaum proposed the concept of Vcash. In the system that he proposed, you had an infrastructure that's very similar to current fiat money, where a central bank controls the issuance of digital currency and the central bank is also responsible for making sure that transactions are valid and that a certain digital currency token is actually valid, is actually real. This technology kickstarted the interest into using cryptographic techniques to track and take care of financial transactions on the internet that was just beginning to flourish at that time. But unfortunately, it never really caught up as a widely adopted system, even though it produced a lot of interesting research. Well, what is uh, cryptographic in, in detail? So cryptography in general is the study of techniques for protecting information in many different ways. So you're protecting information in terms of privacy, where you don't want some people to learn some secret information you have. You protect information's authenticity, where you make sure that some data comes from a trusted source. And furthermore, you can even protect information during computation, meaning that you could be computing on secret information without seeing that information, but just the output of the computation. This vast range of mathematical techniques allows us to manipulate information while keeping all of this privacy and authenticity guarantees in place. And one of the applications is uh, obviously on this uh, digital currency schemes. Okay, so so um, now we move into a little bit into to, to blockchain here. So 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 can you explain us how how this linked to blockchain and and what what blockchain is? Well, after this first effort to create digital currencies using these cryptography techniques, after that died out, people were also looking into two very important pieces that became part of the blockchain revolution namely the blockchain structure itself and the proof of work puzzles. From the authenticity side of things, people were looking into using this blockchain data structure that is immutable in a way in order to keep track of timestamps of certain documents. So the applications would be if you have a court case where you're logging in some documents as evidence, or if you have a large corporation that needs to log certain documents for legal reasons, you could use a blockchain data structure to make sure that certain documents were produced at a certain time and that they were produced at a certain order. So, so if you have a number of uh, stakeholders who are all involved in the same process where they all have to come with input to a piece of paper to a document, then you can use uh, blockchain uh, technology to keep track of who are doing what or? Exactly, that was the idea. Though when this was first proposed, there was no distributed computation of the blockchain. You would have, for example, a court of law or the legal department of a large company producing the blocks in this blockchain infrastructure. That was uh, this idea that was proposed back in the early 90s by Haber and Stornetta. And the idea was simply keeping this timestamp was very nice, but also didn't really 
take off as expected back then. Then the other component is what came in the Bitcoin blockchain, what we call proof of work or proof of work puzzles. The idea of this proof of work is that you should be able to prove to someone that you have spent some time doing some work with your computer. But this proof should be so easy that the person verifying that should be able to make sure you really did that work without having to redo all that same work again. So you want to say, for example, I have spent 10 minutes computing something on my computer, but you want to be able to prove that to a third party in a way that they can verify that what you're claiming is true in less than a second, let's say. And this idea was proposed by Moninauer and others in the context of spam protection and other applications, where, for example, in order to send an email, you would need to prove that you had to spend a few minutes computing before you send that email. That would make it invisible. Well, why is that uh, essential that I have to, 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 to show this, that I have spent this time? Well, why is that important? In the idea of spam protection, the idea was to make it invisible for a spammer to send millions of emails because that would mean that the spammer would have to do millions of these few minutes computations, mm -hmm. which would take years, uh, centuries, or <laughs> how much, how many time that would take. But if you're sending a legitimate email or you send just one email to someone, you could spend your two minutes computing and that wouldn't be bad for you. And that's how that idea also came up in the research community. And But still they were not coupled together, the idea of blockchains and this proof of work puzzle. The, in the big Bitcoin revolution, Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever that is. We, we will get back to, to him yeah. or her. <laughs> So they came up with a way to combine these two components in order to create what we know today as distributed ledgers based on blockchains. And, and um, I mean, uh, let, let's try to make a um, to make it very tangible. Uh, this uh, blockchain and, and creating a new block in the chain. So 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 basically, we we would like to understand what is. What are the steps in creating a new block? And what is it that we have to um, uh, pay attention to? What, what is the difficult part of creating a new block? So basically, a blockchain works as this immutable ledger where if you are an honest user, you're guaranteed that your transactions will be written. And you have the guarantee that once they are written, they become immutable, so no one can change what has been written on the blockchain. The reason why this is important is because you want to record the order of certain financial transactions so that you know that a certain amount of money has been transferred from user A to user B in such a way that's not reversible. Mm -hmm. Let's take a step back and think of what would happen if it was very easy to generate a block on a blockchain. Let's say in each block, I register a number of transactions and I am at a certain block right now and I have just received, let's say I'm Bob in this uh, game between many users, I have just received some money and I'm malicious. I could transfer the same amount of money, the same coins, both to Charlie and to Alice in two different alternative blocks I create, if it's very easy to create them. And then I can do a network attack where I make Alice believe that her block is the valid one that contains the transaction where she gets the money. And then I make Charlie believe at the same time that he's the one who's getting my money. And I use this money to buy some product, they deliver the product to me. And now I just reverse these transactions and I make both invalid by creating a third block if it's very easy for me to create blocks such that those transactions never happen. Mm -hmm. So if I let people create blocks very easily, very fast, you can very easily do these attacks where I could register financial conflicting financial transactions, transferring the same amount of money to multiple people. It would be like uh, if I had a bill of cash, a physical bill of fiat money, mm -hmm. and I try to convince two, three different people that they're getting my physical cash. Obviously, we can't do that in the real world because I can't simply separate that pill of cash into many different ones 
assuming I cannot fake money. So it's easy to detect. But if we are on the internet, how would we detect that uh, people are not trying to virtually give us the same bill of money to, but to multiple different users? That's where the blockchain immutability comes in. And that's where the process of mining a blockchain in the Bitcoin case comes in. In the Bitcoin scenario, the idea is to use this concept of proof of work puzzles where all users are able to contribute to the system's operation by generating blocks if they are able to solve a proof of work puzzle faster than the other users. These proof of work puzzles are constructed in such a way that it should take an average of 10 minutes to solve one, considering the amount of users currently working on the Bitcoin network. And we know that the user, we, we can very easily verify that a user has solved this correctly. So when you are trying to help the execution of the system, is, you, is it the mathematical computation that takes approximately 10 minutes? Yes, exactly. The This puzzle is constructed using a particular mathematical function that you are trying to invert in a way that takes a lot of time to compute. So we construct this mathematical function in such a way that we can estimate that on average, given a certain computational power that is being applied on that system at the moment, it will take 10 minutes to solve this mathematical problem. Okay. And what it means in practice is that if someone produces a new block, they must have invested enough computational power that took them those 10 minutes to compute this block. So the guarantee that we get is that if I want to reverse a transaction that happened, let's say, six blocks ago, or if I want to change the information that's in the block that happened six blocks ago, I would have to compute the equivalent of seven blocks in the same time that everyone else running the system takes to compute one. That basically means that I have much more computational power than everybody else. And why would I need to compute that is that when we look at this chain of blocks, we will choose the one that is the, the longest. So if I want to generate a, long, a longer chain than everybody else, while changing some block that's way in the past, I need to recompute all of the blocks between our latest block and those blocks in the past, plus the new block I'm going to add to the chain. At the same time as everyone else is only producing one block. Yes. Okay. And that's sense. where yeah. Bitcoin security is, basically. We can show that as long as a majority of the computational power in the network is controlled by honest users, it is infeasible for an attacker to do this computation of all of these blocks much faster than everybody else. Okay, so so if we start from the initial block, which is called the Genesis, Genesis. block, and then let's say that we have a thousand people who is actually uh, transacting Bitcoins back and forth, and every time they do a transaction, they create a new block, right? It's a little bit different. Um, each block can contain multiple transactions. In the case of Bitcoin, each block can contain up to one megabyte of information and the transactions are very small they're in the order of a very few kilobytes depending on the exact transaction you make so one block can actually contain multiple transactions that are broadcast on this network in a way that people trying to produce a block can aggregate a bunch of those into the block they are they're trying to produce okay so so if all these people have been trading with each other or moving uh, Bitcoins back and forward for let's say a year. And if I come in and I want to do something bad to this uh, blockchain, then I have to do something bad to the entire chain of transactions at the same time, or at least I have to find the longest chain of blocks and do something to that one if I want to manipulate the, uh, the system. It depends on exactly which block you want to manipulate. If you want to manipulate a block way in the past, that has been produced many blocks ago, you have to manipulate all other blocks that come after that one. It makes it so the the, <laughs> the 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 longest you go in the past in the past history of the, the blockchain, the hardest it is to change it. 
the guarantee that this gives you in Bitcoin is that the more blocks are added after the block where your transaction has been registered, the harder it is to modify or reverse your transaction. So if you're doing, for example, a very small transaction, let's say we're buying a pizza, we're paying $10 for pizza, 10 euros, whatever, that's a very small amount of money. We might be happy to wait for one block to be produced after the one where we have our transaction as the pizza place in order before we start making the pizza and delivering. Because if we lose those 10 euros, it's not the end of the world. But let's say we're doing a transaction worth millions of euros. Then we would be in trouble if that money suddenly disappears. Then in that case, we can choose to wait, let's say, for 100 blocks. And the very interesting thing is that the more blocks we wait, the much larger the guarantee we get that the transaction won't be modified. So it, it's not a linear relation. Okay. It's an exponential relation. It's very nice that uh, if I wait one block, maybe I have a very small probability that it won't be that 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 block won't be modified. But if instead I wait for a hundred, I have a probability trillions of times smaller that that block will be modified. So we have this very nice property of the longest we, we wait, the longer, the best we have this property that the block won't be modified, that it becomes immutable. And we can choose how much we wait. And, and, and the longer the chain, the, the more secure, basically. I mean, that, is, that it makes a super secure system because you, always, you only have like the same amount of time then to, 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 to recreate the entire chain, then everyone else has to create one block. And then you have to start all over again afterwards, I assume, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And most importantly, it's not even just the physical time. That physical time of 10 minutes that it took to create each block corresponds to all of the computational power that was in, used to create that chain. So that right now is huge, that computational power that is invested, for example, in Bitcoin. If some attacker wants to recreate that alone, they would need several supercomputers to do that, which is not feasible. Let's elaborate a little bit on the on the hardware and, and, and software needed for actually doing this. Uh, someone someone will say crazy mining of uh, of uh, of Bitcoins. I mean, can I do it with my with my laptop here? Uh, what, what would it actually take to, to, to start up doing mining? When Bitcoin started, the idea was actually to make a completely decentralized system where everyone could have a meaningful participation using just their regular home computer. And that was actually the case for a few years in the beginning, where you could just run some mining software on your regular machine. And that would be enough to, every once in a while, solve the proof of work puzzle faster than everybody and publish a block. However, the more people started getting into the system, the harder it got for one person with a regular computer to actually get a new block generated often, to actually solve this puzzle more often, because there was more computational power employed in trying to solve this puzzle. So people started using, at first, GPUs, these massive parallel processors that we usually use for graphics, for playing games or rendering uh, movies and so on. But soon that wasn't cutting it anymore and people started actually producing special computer chips that do nothing but solve the proof of work puzzle. So they actually created for that exact problem. For that exact problem. So those are specific purpose processors that are capable of computing billions or even trillions of solution attempts per second for this uh, computational puzzle. And not only people use those chips, but they actually create what we call mining farms, where one company or group of people run in one physical space in a, in a huge room, thousands of those chips at the same time. And then not only that, but people started grouping themselves in large groups of miners called mining pools, where many different people from different groups get together and pull their resources, their mining resources. And when they manage to generate a new block and they get rewards for generating that block, that's very important. The reason that people invest all those resources, that money, that electricity in mining is because they turn a profit when they generate a new block. And in the mining pools, they split this profit 
among everyone that was involved in trying to solve this puzzle. So, so they have to um, mine the block and then they somehow upload it to the chain and then they see if, if it's a new block, then they get rewarded X amount of Bitcoins. Exactly. Okay. So once a block gets added to the chain successfully, meaning that, that this new block now is part of the longest chain and that everyone starts building on top of that one, that block contains a transaction that the person who generated the block included there, sending this reward amount of points to an address of their choosing. And this reward is actually what generates money in the Bitcoin network. In the beginning, there was zero Bitcoin. When the first block was created after the Genesis block, that creator was awarded some Bitcoin as reward and so on. But in order to control inflation so that we don't have infinite inflation that would make the Bitcoin token actually be worth nothing, that reward is halved every four years or so. So right now, I think it's about six Bitcoin or so. I'm not 100% sure. But every four years or so, that reward is halved so that finally, after many years of mining, about 20 million Bitcoin will have been produced. But so we know that there will be a limited amount of that and that's a scarce resource. So we can put a price tag on it depending on how much people are willing to pay for that limited resource. Okay. So, so, so can we try to make, make an example here? What if we have this mining network and they have now been doing that, they have 10 minutes approximately to do the mining, right? And, and, and then you and I, we make a transaction that has nothing to do with the mining network that is actually added to the chain before they test before they uh, somehow include their new block to the system, to the chain. How, can they, will they actually lose the reward there and they have to start all over again? Or how is that? Once a block gets added and uh, one, once people build new blocks on top of it, that block is confirmed because as we discussed before, if people add new blocks on top of that one block that was added before, it gets extremely hard to modify that. So all the, all the transactions there are considered valid and our new transaction that we sent after that block was added or at the same time it was being added will stay in this memory pool of transactions that the miners will now consider for inclusion in the next blocks. Okay, so, so they can take the, the, all the transaction for, 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 for given, uh, given what they're actually uh, co uh, co uh, computing right now. They can use it as input to their mining uh, algorithm. Yes. Okay. Of course, uh, if some attack happens or even if some natural network um, situation happens where you get forks, where you have two conflicting versions of the chain that are more or less the same length, and in the end, one of them will, will prevail, one of them will become the longest chain and the other one will be discarded, the transactions that were in that discarded chain and that discarded fork will not be valid anymore. So you have to do them again and, and reconsider what happened there. But uh, as, as I said before, the longest a chain is built after a certain block, the lower the probability is that this block will be discarded later, that it's part of a fork or so on. So we what we do is that we wait for a number of blocks to be built on top of a block with our transactions that we want to make sure they are confirmed, as we say, or finalized. In Bitcoin, the rule of thumb is waiting for six blocks. In other cryptocurrencies, it's more or less blocks. And if you want a higher degree of certainty that a block will never be dropped or modified, you can wait for as many blocks as you want. And you know that the more blocks you wait for to be built on top of your block, the higher the probability that your block will never be changed. Makes sense. Makes total sense. Okay, uh, uh, before we, we jump into the blockchain uh, technology and how it's, uh, how it's uh, applied to, to, to other industries uh, or to industries in general. I think we should elaborate a little bit on, um, on this uh, mysterious uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. Who is this guy? Can you please tell me? That's an interesting question. Nobody really knows if it's one person or a group of people or a governmental agency or whatever. There has been no proper proof that someone or some group of people is Satoshi Nakamoto. 
So over the years, there have been several people claiming to be Satoshi Nakamoto or several media vehicles claiming that other people were Satoshi Nakamoto and those people said clearly they weren't and there was no concrete evidence to support these allegations. And we still don't know who that is. Uh, how, how did it start? How did he upload uh, or she, uh, the group? What, what happened? In the beginning, whoever that was uh, wrote a paper a, uh, describing the algorithms and protocols behind the Bitcoin cryptocurrency, the idea of, of combining a blockchain data structure with a proof of work puzzle and using that as, as a decentralized ledger where no central authority can reverse history and then using this ledger to record financial transactions that are signed using digital signatures and so on. That was in that paper and uh, these people announced it as a open source software project and started developing and calling for volunteer developers to join the effort uh, of implementing this into a usable software stack that people could download and then use for mining or for sending transactions and money around and so on. And they were announcing that on mailing lists and so on. And some programmers, some open source enthusiasts thought it was a good idea, started working on that. And all the correspondence, it's publicly available in these mailing lists and so on. You can see that it comes from one address. It's all signed by certain PGP keys that are connected to Satoshi Nakamoto. At some point, this communication ceased. After a while, after the software stack was mature enough and after there was a strong open source community involved in further developing the software, Satoshi Nakamoto kind of disappeared for a while. And then uh, some years later, when there were these allegations in media that this, this uh, guy in the US was actually Satoshi Nakamoto, and apparently he wasn't at all. It was just an eccentric guy with a background in computer science and so on, but not Satoshi Nakamoto. Then there was a new message on this mailing list signed by the same digital signature key connected to Satoshi Nakamoto saying, hey, that guy is not Satoshi. And then <laughs> Satoshi went under again and nobody really knows, even though there have been several people claiming to be Satoshi, there hasn't been any definitive concrete proof that someone is indeed that person. And interestingly, they still control, um, uh, it's a huge amount, I'm not sure of the number right now, but they control the amount of Bitcoin that is worth billions of dollars because Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever they were, were actually mining the first Bitcoin when they launched the, this open source project, when it was very easy to mine with your own computer. They mined thousands, hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin that have, that have been just lying there in the same addresses where they were transferred to when the first blocks were mined. So those, those Bitcoin have not moved. People watch those, those addresses intently. Every day there's several people with alerts that will go off if those Bitcoin move because they are connected to Satoshi, but nobody has seen them move just yet. And no, no one knows if, it, if they will ever move. I have uh, obviously read a little bit about this uh, guy or group of person uh, involved here. And, I, and I've, I've, I've read texts that saying that, 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 um, that the coding and the idea is simply too sophisticated uh for 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 one person to develop so 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 i have groups claims that 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 it must be more than one person otherwise he is simply or she is simply too smart i mean they, it's such a strong code and and it's built up in such a uh, sophisticated manner that it, with high 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 likelihood could not be one person is that the or is that just the claims that as uh, all other claims well, I think all of these claims are reasonable in a way. Um, the Bitcoin system is extremely complex and it turned out to be correct. There's something uh, that we usually see in cryptographic protocols that were developed by engineers or basically by people without a PhD in cryptography. They're usually wrong. They usually fail miserably. For example, the first SSL and TLS protocol versions that you use when you use the HTTPS protocol in your browser to access your bank or so on. 
those first versions were terribly wrong. They were very easy to break, they leaked information and so on, because they were designed by engineers with a lot of experience in networking and so on, but without any experience in cryptography. With Bitcoin, we have this conflicting situation where, on one hand, the paper that describes the system doesn't really look like it was written by a cryptographer because it doesn't contain mathematical proofs that the system works. But on the other hand, it turns out to be so well constructed that later on cryptographers have been able to mathematically prove that that system is actually correct and secure. So <laughs> do, we, do we believe that it was an amateur who, who wrote that because they didn't do what cryptographers would usually do when designing that system? Or do we believe that it was a cryptographer who did it because it turns out to be secure and correct? Um, and then do we believe that it was a very lucky amateur or that it was a cryptographer who had the patience to get into doing that? And then um, also the group of people versus one person, I think it's hard to judge because we have seen in, in the cryptographic community some huge breakthroughs coming out of the minds of, of one or two people okay. without requiring large groups. But we have also seen the same breakthroughs coming out of large groups of people working on a problem. So I think that both versions are plausible here. Uh, I, I think it would be very hard to say exactly who, if it was one person or a group of people, or if they were, if they had this or that background, because there, there are all these conflicting elements to, to this project that in the end turned out to be a, a, a beautiful technical achievement that now we have much better understanding of. We, we do understand now why it's secure and and why it has these characteristics that it has, even though the original paper did not describe that. And but it, it, but it turned running. out to be secure and, and, and yes, uh, that's fantastic. It's not even just secure because it's running and nobody broke it. We can actually prove mathematically, now we know how to do it, how to prove that it is secure, that under the a reasonable set of assumptions, it will remain secure. And usually doing that is extremely hard. I mean, constructing, designing a protocol that has this provably secure guarantees is usually very, very hard. And usually people fail in doing so unless they actually try to write down these proofs. And then we get the situation that the Satoshi paper didn't have the proofs, but they turn out to exist. We managed to do these proofs now. And, uh, <laughs> but then it's very hard to, to, to guess. But I, I don't know, I, I don't think I would bet on any of the alternatives. I would be very interested, interested in knowing who could have done it? Uh, there's <laughs> do, all do, you think, uh, do you think uh, Nakamoto will uh, remain uh, a mystery or do you think that it will ever be revealed who is actually behind the... How, how do you... Just to, to, to finalize this last uh, the, this, this, this discussion about the, the Bitcoin here. My personal guess here would be that Satoshi will remain a mysterious entity <laughs> for some reasons here. First of all, Satoshi is known to control this vast amount of Bitcoin. So if I had that much money myself, I wouldn't want to be known as a person that rich just okay. for personal security uh, reasons. Yeah, makes sense. And then uh, there's also the legal reasons. Maybe some in some jurisdictions, creating such a system that has been used actually for illegal activities multiple times could be seen as a crime, even though, of course, Satoshi never incentivized people to use it for wrong, uh, for wrongdoing or anything like that. Maybe Satoshi or that whoever that is could be in trouble in some jurisdictions if they reveal who they are. Super, super interesting. And it is actually a perfect uh, overlap to, to the next um, topic I would like to s discuss, um, which is on general on, on, on the cryptocurrencies that we see. I mean, one of the biggest problems is, is obviously the, the, the lack of uh, regulation. And uh, that makes it, um, I, I, will, uh, I think I would say, impossible for, 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 for these cryptocurrencies to actually get enough traction. Uh, simply because uh, we cannot use them, uh, we cannot uh, involve them in our society as we can with all other currencies that are regulated. 
that's a very good point. Um, most of the projects right now that are developing a cryptocurrency platform, a decentralized cryptocurrency platform based on blockchain technology, follow this, uh, let's call it more anarchic approach of Satoshi, where once you have an account on the system or a set of pseudonym addresses, it's very hard to track how transactions are, are done either by design or by adopting certain strategies that make it hard to follow the money. And that is directly incompatible with international and national financial regulations in most of the world. And that makes it very hard for companies who have fiduciary obligations, who have legal ob obligations to adopt this technology because they might come into scrutiny and they might be held legally responsible for for wrongdoing done over the systems or for not being able to track who did certain transactions with them using the systems. Another problem apart from the legal regulations is that even though most of the systems make it very easy for a criminal to hide their tracks, on the other hand, they make it very hard for a regular user to make sure their privacy is protected. As I said before, this blockchain infrastructure makes sure that the honest users can write their transactions on it and that these transactions become immutable when written. And most importantly, these transactions become public. Anyone in the internet can read those transactions. This means that your financial activity becomes readily available to everyone with an internet connection who can look at this blockchain, which is not good, right? We have legal um, guarantees of financial privacy in our current systems for very good reasons. Your financial transactions can reveal very sensitive data about your personal life that shouldn't be reviewed. And now we even have regulations such as the GDPR that ensure that we should have our privacy preserved unless there is a legal need for investigation. But, but couldn't um, I mean a, a blockchain um, network can be can be behind uh, or boxed in so only invited authorities or tax authorities or the or the member of the of the chain so to say can actually look through the entire chain and see all the transactions. That would be problematic because the whole point of building the blockchain infrastructure is that it should not depend on central authorities for transactions to be written on it and read. So this distributed network of miners and of users should be able to look at all, the, all of the transactions in a way in order to validate transactions, in order to make sure that a transaction is actually registered and confirmed, and also in order to perform the mining. So if we lock this infrastructure in a way that only authorities can read the transactions, we break the whole decentralization that we're working towards. Mm. Now, there are some solutions that have been available for a few years now that allow you to write transactions on a blockchain in a way that you're guaranteed to preserve the privacy of all information in these transactions, meaning that you don't know where the transactions came from, you don't know where they're going, you don't know how much money was involved, but you can verify that they are valid. So all you can learn from looking at this transaction blob on the public blockchain is that it's a valid transaction. So this allows you to perform private privacy preserving transactions in such a way that only the people who are actually sending and receiving money know that, well, I received money or I sent money, mm -hmm. but the general public looking at the blockchain cannot Identify find it out. Identify the sender and the receiver. Exactly. But that that brings another huge problem. It makes it even harder for lawful investigations to take place. Because if you use these techniques, they're based on mathematical techniques from the field of cryptography, where we can prove mathematically that if you use that, that information about the transaction is protected with, with very strong security. Mm -hmm. So governmental agencies also cannot look into those transactions if need be. So that's a very big problem that we're solving now with new research and new projects that are coming up. 
Uh, that brings me to, to, to the, the next topic, um, because obviously there is uh, a lot of areas outside uh, cryptocurrencies where, where blockchain technology is, uh, or, or potentially is, is, uh, is, is providing a, a new way of, uh, of working. Um, and, and one of the topics is uh, smart contracts in general. And I know that it is some of the things that you also spend a lot of time on. Um, can you can you explain us a little bit about what what is this and and why is uh, blockchain technology uh, delivering on, on smart contracts as as it is? So the concept of smart contracts is also a old one compared to the current cryptocurrencies. It was introduced in the early '90s by Nick Szabo in a in a paper talking about this abstract idea of a contract that is automatically self-fulfilling in the sense that you write this contract like a computer program that specifies a number of conditions under which some assets should change hands or under which some actions should take place. So you could, for example, write such a smart contract that says, if someone pays me 10 euros, I will send them a copy of a movie. Let's say I do a movie rental or selling contract like that. And this digital object should make sure that once anybody sends this 10 euros to me, that they automatically get this, this movie, even if I am malicious and I try to run away and not give them the movie. So the whole point of the smart contract is to automatize the fulfillment of a contract without the need for courts of law and so on to enforce that contract execution. And even though the concept was very interesting already in the early 90s, there was no technology that would allow you to implement that because how would you perform this financial transactions digitally in a way that people could not disrupt them? Well, you could think that you could use this idea of the e-cash with the central bank, but then still you could have some disruption in the central bank and so on. With the advent of decentralized cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, it became clear that you could use these systems where no central authority can reverse transactions or reverse the contents inside this blockchain ledger, inside the blocks, to create true smart contracts. And now the idea of current smart contract systems is that they run on top of a blockchain ledger and of a cryptocurrency based on a blockchain ledger in a way that they live on the blockchain as a piece of computer code that is executed by the miners who are creating new blocks. And those miners, once they detect transactions that send a certain amount of money to the contract, they execute the, the contract code, verify what actions should be taken, and write on the blocks they're generating new transactions that make sure that these actions are taken. So in the case of the movie, I could say, I could use some complicated cryptographic techniques to make sure that if someone signs a transaction giving me the, two, the 10 euros, they can use this transaction as a key to open an encrypted file with the movie, for mm -hmm. example. That would be a, 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 an example of that. And then the contract would be basically executed automatically. There's no interaction with me after I, after I signed this contract, after I put this contract out. And it's self-fulfilling. Now, I've talked about these very simple examples, but the interesting thing is that we can make arbitrary smart contracts for arbitrarily complicated conditions in very large contracts and so on. This All kinds is a, of insurance contracts and, and, and similar. Yes, you could even, uh, there, there have been attempts that didn't succeed very well, but have, have, there have been attempts to even have some kind of governance boardroom contracts that w would work as a virtual boardroom where people who put money into a virtual organization get to vote for 
how that money is invested by the virtual organization and okay. so on. Uh, uh, and where those votes are processed automatically and the money is transferred uh, to people who pitch ideas for investment automatically <laughs> without actually relying on any okay. third parties. So there have been these attempts that they, they didn't quite succeed because we're still developing proper uh, smart contract infrastructure. Uh, the, the current uh, infrastructure is still not quite there, but you can do this super complicated contracts that self-fulfill. Okay. One big problem still is privacy. The current technology still doesn't allow for, for private smart contracts, meaning that all the conditions in the contract must be public and all the transactions that the contracts receive and all the actions must be public. But that's exactly one of the topics I have been personally working on. In, in creating protocols that will allow us to do smart contracts that look like a blob. You see them on the on the blockchain, you know that they are valid, you know that some action happened, that some money was transferred, but you don't know who did the action, who uh, how much money was transferred or so on, except if the authorities say, mm -hmm. you must reveal that, then we can run a revealing protocol. But what the... Um what what state of uh, matureness is uh, blockchain technology right now? I mean, do we actually see it as a as a uh, an applic applicable tool to 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 any business now that 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 the industry or some industries can take up and use it in 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 their um, value chain and organizations? Is are we that mature with blockchain, or do we still have some some years uh, ahead of us? Well, the basic idea is already well understood and there are many applications that, ha that have been proposed. This idea of renting um, music or videos online, that's something that some companies are actually looking into. There is ideas of uh, using blockchain systems for tracking supply chains. Um, there's ideas of using that for purely financial things such as microloans and so on. Um, and, and there's ideas of using that for ensuring fair trade of products with uh, poor countries and communities and so on. So there are many different ideas using that for um, applications that are not necessarily purely financial. Mm -hmm. And those are actually easier to implement if you don't have the financial component in the middle. You don't have so, so much regulation. Exactly. Uh, then there's obviously a lot of uh, financial applications that people have come up with. And for most of these applications, mostly the financial ones, of course, what we like right now is uh, a system that is fully regulation compliant. Mm -hmm. So that companies can be involved in those systems and actually use them to do business without being liable for uh, some regulation breach that might happen. So, so, so it, it is actually already applied to... to, to to real life projects. It's not only a, an idea anymore, it's actually working. Yes, exactly. There are many projects that are running, uh, trying to solve different problems like that. They're still not adopted in a very wide scale, exactly because of this regulation problem. Mm -hmm. And of course, still maturing the technology more to make it more user-friendly, and not only to the end users, but also to regular developers who need to have tools to develop applications such as smart contracts on top a blockchain platform without needing a super deep okay. knowledge about how the blockchain works. And also they need tools to test that what they are doing is actually working. For example, they need to test that this boardroom contract is not going to leak $50 million to attackers as it happened when people tried to, okay. to deploy it before. <laughs> so sense. this tool stack is being built as we speak by uh, different projects and it will certainly be available in, in a short term basis now. And I think that that will be the, the last piece, both the, the, the usability stack for development and end users and the regulation compliance in order to make this um, actually usable in a large scale. Of course, there's also the scalability problems as I, I haven't mentioned that before, but the Bitcoin blockchain protocol is extremely inefficient. It's wasteful. The mining process requires the waste of huge amounts of energy. The mining process is actually using more energy than some small countries right now. And we have been hard at work at solving that. I've been personally involved in some projects where we, we have developed 
blockchain protocols that are much more sustainable and energy efficient. And also we have better efficiency in supporting more users and in confirming these transactions, validating them faster, which is obviously important if you want to support a large number of users. You don't want that to mean that we're going to drown the earth in, in, in CO2 emissions from generating the energy to mine or that everyone will have to wait for hours before they know their transaction is, uh, is uh, confirmed. If but, but the mining component of a blockchain, is that crucial for all blockchains to work? Will you all, always be need, uh, have, have the need for, uh, for actually being able to mine? Well, you have the need for a reliable mechanism that F. makes it not easy for everyone to simply generate a block. A new block a new block, but makes it very easy for anybody to quickly verify a block is valid. The point is that you don't need mining in order to do that. You don't need this computational puzzle that is hard to solve in order to do that. There's another mechanism called proof of stake that um, has been developed. That was part of the one of the first uh, projects to develop one. And uh, we can prove that this mechanism gives us the same security guarantees as the proof of work mechanism does in the Bitcoin blockchain. We can prove that will also give us a blockchain where you guarantee that honest people get their information written and that, that information becomes available to everyone and immutable and so on. The big difference is that with this mechanism, instead of uh, wasting tons of uh, computational power and consequently electric energy, all you need to do in order to try to generate a block and verify that you can generate a block, then generate it, is to compute basically two or three digital signatures, mm. which is something you are computing all the time, even in your phone or your smartwatch and so on, when you're accessing secure websites and so on. Okay. It's extremely efficient to do that, so we dramatically reduce the energy waste. So you, you don't need a farm to... Uh... <laughs> no, you need your smartwatch basically. And uh, also an interesting point of that mechanism is that the people who get to generate blocks are the people who have invested money into the system. Mm -hmm. With uh, proof of work, you buy the hardware and you can use the hardware to mine in many different blockchains. And as you mine, you can also choose to attack one of them, kill them, and then move to another one because your hardware will work everywhere. With proof of state, if you want to generate a block or if you want to use that block generation to do an attack, you actually have to have some stake on the system, uh -huh. meaning you have to hold some coins in that system. You must have purchased or obtained those and coins somehow. Then you are actually visible. Or, uh, then, then the pe other people within the system, they can actually see you more or less, right? They, they can backtrack it to you. Uh, yes, and also you have a financial incentive not to attack because you would you be involved. <laughs> losing your own yeah, investment, yeah, right? You wouldn't sense. sabotage a, a project or company where you have invested a lot of money <laughs> right sense. so that's one of the the ideas here super cool i mean it's so it's so interesting i mean we are we are we are almost uh, at the end of this um, fantastic interview here but i would like to hear you also involved in the uh, concordium project uh, I, will, will it be unfair to call it a, a startup, a fintech startup? Are we still at that stage or is it more mature than that? Or, uh, and what, what is going on there? Can you elaborate a little bit? Well, it's certainly a blockchain company. Um, I guess you could call it uh, a startup, but in a way, a very solid one. And, uh, there's a lot of uh, solid investment partners behind it. Um, and the problem we're trying to solve here is exactly putting together this last building blocks we need in order to make blockchain technology truly usable, truly scalable and, and widespread in the world on real world applications. So, so actually make it ready for, for business. I mean. Exactly. The whole idea is that we're not trying to do an anarchic cryptocurrency or have perfect privacy for all. What we want to do is a blockchain platform that allows for cryptocurrency transactions for smart contracts and so on that is regulation compliant both on the privacy and financial sites and that is also scalable so that you can actually put a huge number of users on it while making sure that the transactions are processed fast enough so that you have a usable product and also solving this 
usability stack problem I've told you about, where we want to make sure that people can actually use this without being experts and that programmers can come up with applications on top of it and test them to make sure they work without needing to know everything about the underlying Okay, ba basically uh, you're, you're making the technology available so, so that a company can call, can call you or Concordium and they can ask, say we have this um, ledger problem or this ledger um, infrastructure and then they can have a discussion with, with you guys if, if the blockchain technology is actually suitable to support their needs uh, within and actually it should be uh, agnostic for, for industries. I mean, it should be usable for, for basically everywhere where there is a ledger component. Yes, they don't even need to actually talk to the Concordium Foundation. They, if a company wants to use the, the platform, all they need to do is to purchase tokens in some way in order to pay for the execution of the smart contracts and so on. The big news in, in what we're doing there is that uh, first on the lowest layer of uh, the blockchain protocol itself of consensus, we have this new concept of finalization, as a, of a finalization layer and finalization as a service where we have these new protocols that allow us to confirm to users that a large batch of transactions are written and forever immutable very fast without having to wait for many blocks to be generated. So we can, in, in, at least in, according to the latest experiments, bring down the waiting time from, let's say, one hour to a couple minutes okay. for, for transactions to be validated. And that's not per transaction, it's for a huge batch of transactions. Uh, the interesting thing is that we can even extend our uh, finalization approach in a way, by finalization, I mean this process that confirms that a certain block has become mutable and everything behind it has become immutable. We can even offer that as a service. So if someone has a separate ledger pro project that must run privately in another context, they can still use the power of the Concordian blockchain in order to confirm to that their ledger has become immutable without mm -hmm. revealing information from from their ledger or polluting the concordium ledger with potentially not regulation compliant um, information so we can also sell that as a service on top of that we can also use this finalization as a service this idea that the main chain can finalize other chains can put the stamp that everything on a chain has become immutable can we have uh, this protocol that does sharding based on that meaning that as the concordium platform scales the more users we have on that, the more people willing to generate blocks we have on the system, we can start separating them in smaller groups. They're gonna run what we call shards, which are individual smaller chains that cater to a specific subgroup of users. So we can in parallel service a much higher number of users. And as more people join the system, the more people we can actually support because there will be more people to run more of these parallel copies mm -hmm of the chain, they're still efficiently finalized by the main finalization as a service in the central chain. So we have we have put a lot of work into building this foundations of a highly scalable blockchain ledger, mm -hmm. where you're gonna write your transactions and your smart contracts and so on. So we both have fast finalization, meaning that you have your transactions confirmed in no time. And we have the scalability to process hundreds of thousands of transactions per second. Then on top of that, now that we have that infrastructure, we have looked into the regulation problem, mm -hmm. which is how do you make sure that things are private, but also amenable to lawful investigation. Towards that, we have developed uh, now a cryptocurrency system that we can put on top of our highly scalable blockchain ledger, where everyone's transactions are private, unless a court of law says they need to investigate some transaction. If there's a legal order to do so, there is a process where not only one central authority who could be corrupted goes there and de-anonymizes things, because that could be dangerous. You could claim that, ah, that authority can go rogue and steal people's private data. But no, there's a process where several authorities have to get together. So let's say the justice system, the fiscal tax yeah, system, the police, yeah, yeah, yeah. other governmental agencies, they have to cooperate and they have to agree that there is 
a legal reason to de-anonymize people's transactions and then they get to do the, the, the de-anonymization. Also, the system is designed in such a way that in order to use it, much like, you, much like what you do in a bank, you need to have certain authorities vouch for your identity. So your identity is protected at all times, unless there's a court order mm -hmm. that says that the, that the government needs to know who performed a certain transaction. So your identity is protected at all times. There's no privacy risk there. But if there's a legal order that compels the foundation, compels a company using the system to find out who has performed a certain transaction, it is possible to find out the actual identity of the user who did it and bring them to full prosecution according to local jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. So this is very important because that brings the last piece of uh, regulatory compliance there, that you have the privacy, great, but there's no information leaking about the transactions, only that they're valid, unless there's a legal order for investigation and when that happens, there's no central authority who can just de-anonymize. Those authorities can come together and but, but, only if they agree, they find out who, who did something illegal and they can go deal with them as the law uh, But basically allows. you're making the technology banking ready so it can be applied to, to various uh, types of, uh, of banking and pensions and, uh, exactly. and so forth and insurance, obviously. Yes, and the good thing is that you can also subdivide all this infrastructure of the user accounts that are private unless there is a court order and so on by different jurisdictions and so on so you can keep regulatory silos in the system and uh, it's really compatible to what with what the world looks like now so our idea is not doing something that is not there's not compatible with regulations and trying to change the regulations much of the country, our idea is making a blockchain system for cryptocurrencies and smart contracts that is 100% compatible with all financial and privacy regulations. And then we can evolve that system as the regulations evolve, not the other way around, which we think yeah. makes sense from a business point of, of view. So, 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 so basically, we have now been talking about how, where we are and how we got to where we are. So if we, we, we take the luxury and, and look into uh, to, to the future here. So uh, first, do we think that the, the, the technology will become um, standard and, 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 uh, and be applied basically everywhere? Uh, and, and, how do you and on top of that, how do you think that the, the world of, uh, of blockchain technology looks, uh, looks uh, as from five and 10 years from now? Well, I believe that with the current efforts towards uh, regulatory compliance systems and scalable systems, the technology will finally become mature enough that it can be applied to a, a number of real world scenarios and businesses in a meaningful way. So hopefully people will actually realize all the potential that this technology has in these scenarios and in some of these very compelling situations for using this kind of decentralized system that will become a standard uh, tool that will be used in IT systems in the future. Okay. So I do believe that there will be several applications where blockchain technology will be adopted, not only financial applications, but also other applications, as I mentioned, uh, supply chain management and uh, renting of digital files and assets, or even tracking of uh, physical assets in general and tracking authenticity of things such as paintings and, and expensive cars and so on. So there's a whole world of potential to be explored in this technology that basically allows you to do autom automatic financial transactions that are guaranteed to remain private and that are guaranteed to work without external interference, but where you can still respond to lawful investigation attempts. I think that will, th this component of being able to write a smart contract that does all your business logics automatically for you will be a, of great help for many businesses, for many applications. You take the burden of uh, a lot of bureaucratic work that goes into processing this kind of things in the real world, you put that into an automatic process that 
also handles the finances for you, that handles the regulation compliance, that handles the law keeping and so on. You make things faster, easier and more secure by using this kind of technology when we finish developing this last building block. So I do believe it's going to be um, widely adopted in many real world scenarios. At least it sounds like a fantastic uh, idea to, to have this. And, and obviously since so many um, brave companies and startups are looking into it now, I mean, that it's it seems solid. Uh, Bernardo, thank you so much for, for coming. It has been extremely interesting. And, and, uh, and I hope that in a couple of years from now, I can invite you back and, and get a status on where we are with the blockchain technology and, and the projects that you are involved in. Yes, thanks for the invitation. I also hope that in a couple of years I can come with uh, great news again on the podcast <laughs> and tell you about all the flashy new features we have on Concordium. Fantastic. Thank you, Bernardo. Thank you.